You're listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent in Birmingham, Alabama, a church with a heart for the gospel. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org. Hi, everyone. Thanks for being here. Um, So this is another edition of the Bible and Parenting. Um, Yeah, we're going to look at, uh, we've been basically going through stories of the Bible uh, texts that are explicitly about parenting and then going through stories of the Bible to see what we can glean in order to build like a, a biblical theology of parenting. And so today we are going to look at Genesis 29. And this story is one of the most dysfunctional stories in all the Bible. Um, yeah, we're going we're gonna to look at how, what is the root of dysfunction? <laughs> And we're going to look at how if we don't find our needs in Christ, that we will ultimately use our children. And uh, we'll talk about that. So how about that for an intro? Let me pray for us, and uh, we'll get going. All right, Father in heaven, thank you, for, um, thank you that you are Jehovah Jireh, that you are God the provider, the one who provides for all of our needs, particularly um, our needs for love and our needs for justification and our needs for salvation. And so uh, I pray, Holy Spirit, that you'd be at work, that you'd uh, individually speak to each one of us through your word and through your truth. And we pray that that would be the thing that goes forward. I ask you, Spirit, in Jesus' name, amen. Okay, so we're going to look at the story um, about Jacob and Leah and Rachel and Laban. And to give you a little bit of background, um, Jacob is really deceitful. Um, Jacob is a twin. He has an older brother named Esau. Esau is entitled to the birthright. And Jacob and his mom scheme to deceive his legally blind father um, to steal the birthright. He is the younger, steals the birthright from his brother. He is estranged from his family. He's on the run. He kind of expects that his brother is trying to kill him. Um, and, um, and, you know, uh, Jacob, we tend to often think about how, you know, Jacob is such a bad guy primarily because Jacob is such a bad guy. <laughs> and something, um, as in this week, I was, uh, for like our, my, our Monday, like Confident Faith class, I was reading about uh, how to, like, I was kind of refreshing on how to interpret Hebrew narrative, Old Testament stories. And one of the things that said is, a human being is never the hero of the story. God is always the hero of the story. That to me is something like very validating and um, refreshing about the Bible, something that's very consistent from beginning to end. And that is that, you know, and, and that's unique, um, unique to the Old Testament, it's unique to the New Testament um, in, you know, ancient literature. And that is, in ancient literature, usually there, was, there were stories about humans, and the human was the hero. And the human was the... Um, you know, a symbol of virtue of some sort, a symbol of courage or of purity or valor or whatever, or love or service or whatever it may be. But in the Bible, human beings are always very, very flawed. They're very broken. They're never the hero of the story. The hero of the story is always God, according to his grace. And that's consistent throughout scripture. And so we're going to see that here, um, the story of, uh, of Jacob. And so Jacob, we tend to think of like, Jacob deceived his, um, his brother and his father. He steals the birthright. We just tend to think about you know, him as a bad guy. And you know, Jacob has transformation in his life. Um, but we don't necessarily think about 
the emotional, social, and psychological reality of Jacob's life after this shakedown. <laughs> um, that Jacob is disconnected from his family. That he is at odds with his family. That Jacob is kind of a wanderer and he's alone. He's very, very isolated. And so, um, and so that the reason I'm um, bringing that up is because what we're going to see in this story is that everybody has deep needs. Everybody has deep needs, and them trying to find to meet those needs outside of God is what drives all the dysfunction in the story. I'm going to warn you: this story is uh, not rated G. <laughs> there, um, there are some parts of the story where it is like it's it's a uh, it's kind of inappropriate, as we might say. <laughs> all right, so I'm going to start here, verse one. Then Jacob went on his journey and came to the land of the people of the east. And as he looked, he saw a well in the field, and behold, three flocks of sheep lying beside it. For out of um, for out of the well, out of that well, the flocks were watered. The stone on the well's mouth was large, and when it, when all the flocks were gathered there, the shepherds rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, and the and the, and the flocks were gathered. The shepherds oh, rolled the stone from the mouth of the well, and watered the sheep. And put the stone back in its place over the mouth of the well. Jacob said to them, My brothers, where do you come from? And they said, We are from Haran. And he said, Do you know Laban, the son of Nahor? And they said, We know him. And he said, Is it well with him? And they said, It is well. And see, Rachel, his daughter, is coming with the sheep. He said, Behold, it is still high day. Is it, it is not time for the livestock to be gathered together. Water the sheep and go pasture them. But they said, we cannot until all the flocks are gathered together and the stone is rolled from the mouth of the well. Then we water the sheep. Well, while he was speaking with him, Rachel came with her father's sheep, for she was a shepherdess. It sounds so mysterious, doesn't it? She was a shepherdess. Um, now, as soon as Jacob saw Rachel, the daughter of Laban, his mother's brother, and the sheep of Laban, his mother's brother, Jacob came near and rolled the stone from the well's mouth and watered the flock of Laban, his mother's brother. Notice he asked them to uh, ask the other people to do it for him. But now that Rachel's on the scene, like, hey, we can take care of this. I can take care of this myself. We're good. Verse 11, then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. Okay, so quick, quick little pause here. So, you know, here comes Rachel. And, you know, it's mentioned twice. I mentioned twice that this is... Um, that it's his mother's brother. That this would not be considered like deeply incestuous at this time. It's not uncommon to be like marrying people from within your own tribe. Um, but um, but you can see here it says then Jacob kissed Rachel and wept aloud. I had read this before and always assumed like oh this is like a custom you know you know like you go to I, I went to Italy once and um, you know, it wasn't like a very touristy experience. I was with some missionaries there, and you meet people, and they kiss you on the, you know, kiss you on this cheek, kiss you on that cheek. I'm like, oh, this is customary. Uh, my my kids have, for some reason, developed this fascination of like how Europeans like kiss each other on the cheek. Learned on Friday about how Belgians, you know, go they do three kisses. You know, a lot of work there. Um, <laughs> um, this is not customary. I've read all the, I read like a bunch of different commentaries being like, surely this is the custom. It would not be customary um, for a guy to randomly go up to and smooch a woman that he had never met before. This would have been, you know, a little bit over the top, you know. 
Um, and, uh, and then it says he wept aloud. Okay, let's think about this. Let's break it down. You know, he goes up. He's never seen this woman before. We're going to find out she's real, real pretty. She's, she's really cute. Um, but uh, he, is, he sees her, he kisses her, and he starts weeping. Now, let's just think about the weirdness of this, okay? Let's think about your girl, and, you know, this guy comes up to you, smooches you, and then he starts weeping. You're going to be like, I'm not really sure we want to get into this. You know, this guy, he might be a little bit needy, you know? EGR, extra grace required. And, um, and yet, what, you know, what can we see? Like, what's going on here with this guy who sees a really pretty lady who would be marryable according to, like, his relationship to her? And he immediately kisses her, and then he starts weeping. And this is a guy, like, things, the, the, you know, the, the house is not completely in order emotionally. You know, this, this guy is not coming from a place of wholeness. Um, he is coming from a place of deep need, that he's acting so desperate. Get ready, because it's going to get even more desperate. All right, go into verse 12. Jacob told Rachel that he was her father's kinsman, and that he was Rebecca's son, and she ran and told her father. She likes, she, she likes Jacob, like she's on the move. Now, you might find out in a minute that she's a little bit needy when you meet her father, who we're about to meet in a second. Verse 13, as soon as Laban heard this news about Jacob, his sister's son, he ran to meet him and embraced him and kissed him and brought him to this house. Jacob told Laban all these things, and Laban said to him, surely you are my bone and my flesh, and he stayed with him a month. All right, now we're going to find out here that Laban is really, really greedy. And something you need to know is that uh, Isaac, uh, Jacob's dad, was really wealthy. And he was known to be really wealthy. So I'm not so sure that Laban is running and embracing because cousin Jacob has come to town. We haven't seen him in so long, but woo, here comes someone who can marry my daughter's who is, you know, rolling in cash. He's got a nice inheritance coming. Well, he doesn't have it yet, but down the road, he's going to inherit. Got a good, he's got a solid trust fund on the way. All right, so, and, he, and that he stays for a month, that would have been kind of over-the-top hospitality, um, given the circumstances. So verse 15, Then Laban said to Jacob, Because you are my kinsman, should you therefore serve me for nothing? Tell me, what shall your wages be? Now Laban had two daughters. The name of the older was Leah, and the name of the younger was Rachel. Leah's eyes were weak, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. And Jacob loved Rachel, and he said, I will serve you seven years for your younger daughter, Rachel. And Laban said, It's better that I give her to you than that I give, you, that I give her to any other man. Stay with me. So Jacob served seven years for Rachel, and they seemed to him but a few days because of the love he had for her. All right, so a couple of things, a couple of contextual things to know um, is that it was common that if you were going to marry uh, a woman, that your family would pay the, the, the bride's family money. They, they would provide a dowry. But the typical amount that would be given, the standard custom, was about 12 to 18 months worth of wages, Okay. Now, Jacob has said that he will serve for seven years. Seven years. And he's the one who proposed it. This was Jacob. Jacob is not a good negotiator. Okay? <laughs> um, yeah. And, um, 
And so he doesn't, he doesn't have money on hand because of the circumstances with his family. He's going to inherit it later. Um, but he, he leads with set an offer of seven years when 18 months would have been like a high-end offer. And so again, we can see here that Jacob is not in his right mind, um, that Jacob is desperate. Jacob is desperately needy. And I would say he's needy emotionally and relationally. Um, and so another thing that's going to be key here, verse 17, it says that Leah's eyes were weak, uh, but Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. So when it says her eyes were weak, um, I, you know, I don't know if you have a, a Southern mom who will say uh, things that are mean and disparaging, but they say it in a really like politi- uh, a political, uh, euphematic Southern way. Like my mother's way, if, 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 if a woman were very unattractive, my mom would say, yeah, she's unfortunate looking. <laughs> so that is a, this is the author's way of saying that Leah was unfortunate looking. Um, and so, so that being said, then it says that Rachel was beautiful in form and appearance. I mean, back to the just kind of rawness of the story. Form means she had a really good body. And appearance means that she had a pretty face. So, I mean, we're, all the cards are on the table here. Um, in this story of dysfunction. And so Laban, you can see that Laban is a dog. He is a total dog because he knows he's getting this sweetheart deal. And yet he goes, well, I suppose it's better that I give her to you than some other random Joe. He, you know, he's not like seven years. Where do I sign? You got yourself a deal. He's, he's clearly, you know, taking advantage of Laban. And so here's the thing to see. What is Laban doing with his daughters? Well, we'll get to that in a second. Let's read 21 through 26. Then Jacob said to Laban, Give me my wife that I may go in her, for my time is completed. Again, folks, this is not like contextual language. This is not like an idiom. This would not have been appropriate. He literally goes to his father-in-law after the seven years and says, Where's your daughter? I'm ready to have intercourse. That is literally what he is saying. And it would land with Laban in the same way that it might land with you. If you're a father and you have a daughter, wouldn't land really well. But hey, what's Laban? Laban's not like, whoa, pal, that's my daughter. Let's show some respect here. No, no, no. Laban gathered together all the people of the place and he made the feast. But in the evening, he took his daughter to Leah and brought her to Jacob. And he went into her. Laban gave his female servant Zilpah to his daughter Leah to be her servant. And in the morning, behold, it was Leah. And Jacob said to Laban, what is this you have done to me? Did I not, did I not serve with you for Rachel? Why then have you deceived me? And Laban said, it is not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn. A lot of things going on here. First off, what is, what is Laban been doing all along with his daughters? He has been using his daughters. He, um, he loves money. He loves money. Because of his love of money, he therefore is commodifying and objectifying his daughters for his own financial gain. And uh, let's think here about all of the damage and all of the pain that he has caused because he is such a piece of crap. Sorry. Anyhow, he think about Leah's experience. 
you know, hey, you just sneak in there in the dark. He's liquored up. Sleep with him. We're going to get you married to him. Okay, go. Do it. All right? So what? think about the vulnerability that Leah faces. You know, she has slept with this guy, and in the morning he wakes up, and he is like, this is the worst thing that has ever happened to me, that I'm sleeping with this woman and not Rachel. And how humiliating it would be for her to be rejected and humiliated in that way. Like, I am angry that this is the person that has been given to me. But Laban, when you're objectifying a person, you're not treating them like a human being. You're treating them like an object. And so Laban doesn't really care. And so what does Laban then do? Uh, he says, um, he's, oh, well, and now here you know, the chickens come home to roost for Jacob. Because it says that, uh, you know, why then have you deceived me? Same exact language that comes from the story in the Hebrew, like word for word, on what uh, Isaac said after Jacob and his mom had deceived him. So now it's square in his face. Um, and it says, and then it's not done in our country to give the younger before the firstborn, which is the principle that Jacob violated and deceiving. So now we can see here that Jacob also probably has this deep sense of shame. Like he is convicted and he is reminded of his sin and, the, and what he did to his family. Um, and so you can just see the layers of pain, the layers of dysfunction that are forming here. And so, um, and so verse 27, uh, complete the week of this one and we will give you the other also in return for serving me another seven years. So Laban is again, okay, got seven years out of this daughter. I'm going to get seven years out of this whole situation and this daughter. I, you know, I'm going to get, I'm going to get more labor. I'm going to, I'm going to get wealthier. And so Jacob did so and completed her week. Then Laban gave him his daughter Rachel to be his wife. Laban gave his female servant Bilhah to his daughter Rachel to be a servant. So Jacob went into Rachel also, and he loved Rachel more than Leah and served Laban for another seven years. All right, so now we have this another layer of dysfunction. Jacob is married to two women. Not a good idea. We've all watched Sister Wives. We know how this goes. <laughs> um, and you can imagine, you know, the, the resentment that Jacob feels towards Leah and vice versa and just how painful this all is, okay? All right, so verse 31 through 35, we're going to finish this and we'll, you know, talk, talk a little more on the application level. It says, when the Lord saw that Leah was hated, he opened her womb, but Rachel was barren. So that means she was infertile, couldn't have kids. And Leah conceived and bore a son, and she called his name Reuben. For she said, because the Lord has looked upon my affliction, for now my husband will love me. So you can see that she is thinking, hey, he doesn't love me now, but my sister, she hasn't been able to have kids, but I can produce a son for him. He's going to love me now. So she has a need, and she's hoping that the son that she's born is going to get her the love that she desires. So then, um, then, verse 33, she conceived again and bore another son and said, because the Lord has heard that I am hated, he has given me this son also, and she called his name Simeon. Again, she conceived and bore a son and said, now this time my husband will be attached to me because I have borne him three sons. Therefore, his name was Levi. You can see this is not, it's not, Jacob is not coming around. And even if Jacob were to come around, 
It's not going to satisfy her heart. And you're going to see why in verse 35. She conceived again and bore a son and said, This time I will praise the Lord. Therefore she called his name Judah. Then she ceased bearing children. So you can see that she is thinking how this, these children that I'm having are going, to, are going to win me the love that I desire. And Jake, and she's not finding it in Jacob, and she's not finding it in Jacob. And then finally, she has this moment, uh, this moment of salvation, this moment of healing, where she realizes it's not, it's not ever going to work. It's not ever, I'm not ever going to be loved the way I want to be loved by my husband, no matter how many boys I have. And so she turns to God. And, and that's, that's the evidence by the name, this time I will praise the Lord. She finds the love that she desires in God. And so what we can see here is you can see in Laban, Jacob, Leah, and Rachel, that they all have deep need and they are all, it's all misdirected. They're trying to meet their need in places that are of the world, places that are finite, not places that are vertical. They're not trying to find it in God. With Laban, um, he loves money. And he, and, and we can imagine, like, let's, I've been, I haven't been very nice to Laban. Um, but if we were going to put a, a lens of compassion on our eyes to look at Laban, Laban, you know, Laban has a soul that needs to be satisfied and he thinks that money is going to do that for him. We can see that in the way that he responds to, uh, Jacob, who's got, is going to have a big inheritance. We can see that in the way that he uses his daughters. And he thinks that money is going to satisfy him. And there's tons of broken class as a product of that. Then we have Jacob. Jacob thinks that um, that he he needs he needs connectedness. He needs love. He needs a, a sense of fellowship and communion. He thinks Rachel is going to satisfy him. Leah, uh, she needs validation. Uh, she needs validation and she needs worth. And she thinks that having children, that her children, are going to do that for her. Um, and so with that being said, there is this, they, these needs that they have, uh, that they're looking to meet in, you know, in the world, in human relationships or in money or marriage or a family. And because it, and so that leads to all this dysfunction, it leads to using people. It leads to not being concerned with, with their best interests. And it leads to all this pain. And so, um, and so, here are the two critical needs we all have. And it's interesting, we were singing a song in the, uh, the cafeteria service, I like to call it, the refectory service. And, um, and there was this uh, great line. Oh, here it is, great. All right, this is from the song, My Savior Left His Throne Above. And in uh, one of the choruses it says, Because his righteous life is mine, and all his merits now I own. I am a child of God on high. I am adopted, loved, and known. I am adopted, loved, and known. Okay? So let's break this down into two parts. Because his righteous life is mine, all his merits now I own. Need number one. Essential need number one that we all have, that we all must have, that we're all craving is to be justified. So we all have a sense that there's something off, like there's something about us that, that falls short. There's some sense of inadequacy that we carry. And we tend to think like, oh, the inadequacy is I'm not pretty enough or that I'm not successful enough or I'm not rich enough or I'm not charming enough or whatever it is. In reality, at the heart, 
what, what we need to be in relationship with God is we need to be righteous. And to be righteous means that you, all your sins are forgiven and that you're perfectly acceptable to God. So we all need to be justified, meaning that our sins are forgiven and that the goodness of Jesus that he earned from his perfect life is imputed and given to us. It, it, the way we explain it to kids, we say to be justified means that you're enough. You're enough. You're perfectly acceptable to God. That's what it means to be justified. We all, number one need we have in our heart is to be justified. We all need to have this sense of rest that we are perfectly acceptable as we are. Don't have to perform. Don't have to earn it. Don't need anybody's validation. I'm enough. Paul's all describes it as being perfectly comfortable in our own skin. So that's the first need. And you can see that that's, uh, that's part of what's going on in particular with Leah. She thinks these children will justify her. They think these children will make her lovable. Well, in reality, the only thing that makes us lovable is the forgiveness of our sins through Jesus and the righteousness we receive, his righteousness that we receive through, grace, uh, through justification. And so when it says in this song, because his righteous life is mine and all his merits now I own. So the righteousness of Jesus is given to us as a gift, okay? So that's number one. Number one, need, we need to be justified. This is, gonna, this is all coming back to parenting, promise. Um, second thing we need is we need to be perfectly loved. That's what our heart desires. Justification is a means to an end to receive the perfect love of God the Father. So you can see the second part of this line, I am a child of God on high. I am adopted, loved, and known. And that is, and that's really, that's really what Jacob needed. You know, Jacob was totally, totally isolated, totally disconnected, all on his own. And Jacob needed to be loved, like accepted as he was. He needed to be known. Um, and uh, yeah, and he needed, you know, he needed adopted to be brought into a group where he was loved. And so, um, and man, you can see that. You can see it particularly with Leah that she has this need to be loved. If, if I, I've had this child, now my husband will love me. I'm justified by my kids. Now I am known and seen and loved. And it's not, no human being, no human being can give you the love that you need. Only God can give you the love that you need. So the two critical human needs are to be justified and to be perfectly loved. And so if we seek our justification and our love in other places, inevitably it leads to dysfunction. It leads to us objectifying people. I remember Ashley Knoll at, a, at like a, a conference, uh, it was a rooted conference, but you know, for people who are in ministry, he said, if you don't look to Jesus for your justification, you will always hate your, the people that you serve. Whoa, what? He says, yes, because you're gonna be looking to them to justify you, and they're never gonna justify you because they're sinners, and they're never, you're never gonna see the results in sinners that you're hoping for, and you're going to resent them, okay? And so it's always going to lead to us using people. And so let's think about this, how we use our kids to justify ourselves. And this is like a, something we all fall into. Um, I, I know myself. Here's an example. Number one, our kids being well-behaved, having good manners when we're in public or when we're around our in-laws or our parents. Uh, I would say, like, the way that, you know, I am tempted to, Andrew, uh, regulate my kids when we're in public as it pertains to their manners is like, see ya, sir. You know, like, look them in the eye. 
I can be, I can be really kind of like intense, harsh, a little bit over the top. Not that, not that harsh, but, but I can feel it. I can feel a tension in myself um, when I'm like, shake that person's hand, tell them thank you. Uh, more so than like, I am around the house. And it's because don't make me look bad. You know, like, yeah, you know this, we all know this. Thanksgiving's coming up. Kids are going to be around our parents. Holy cow. Please, child. Please, child. Don't throw that tantrum that you throw around the house in front of in-law or in front of mom. I don't want my parents to think I'm a bad parent. Right? Now, this isn't anything we explicitly verbalize, but we all know what's going on inside, right? There you go. Veteran parent back there. She's been there. She's got the well-adjusted kids to show for it. She knows. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. And that, that is, in a sense, we're looking for our kids to justify us. Like when our kids are well-mannered in front of other people, and we're like, they said yes, sir. <laughs> it's, it's like, in a sense, I know this sounds, we're not, I'm, not, I'm not saying that we're laban, but I kind of am saying that we're laban in the sense that we are, de- we are using our kids. We are depending on them to justify us. Uh, we can see it with our kids' achievements. You know, whether that's school or sports, it is always, it's a temptation, it's real, and it can be really sad. And we can all see it, and maybe we can identify with it, but we can all see it, the, the parent where they don't know where they end and their child begins. Whether it's like the parent has a sense of inadequacy of like, I wasn't that smart or I wasn't that cool. I wasn't that good of an athlete, but man, my child sure does show promise. And I'm going to now try to justify myself through their greatness in school or their greatness on the sports field or whatever it is. Um, that is using our kids to justify ourselves. Um, another one, uh, nostalgia. Uh, this is kind of a weird one. I've observed a lot of this in youth ministry. And that is, you know, we had a really good experience in the past at a, at a college or in a fraternity or in a sorority or in a certain line of work. And for some reason, we want our kid to follow our footsteps so that um, gives us a sense of validation. Like, oh, I went to this school and my child's going to this school too, and this is a validation of me. Or I, I pledged blah, 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 blah. And, and so Johnny's going to do that too. And really what's going on there is we're looking for Johnny to validate us. We're using Johnny to justify ourselves. And so, um, and maybe you, can, maybe you can identify with this from your experience as a child. Maybe there was a way that you felt like you were kind of a trophy for your parents. Um, where you felt like now as you look back on it, perhaps like you felt kind of used by your parent for their own glory. They were, they were pushing you in some kind of way. Um, that it wasn't about you and your best interest. It was kind of, you could tell now looking back that it was more about them. Um, and so with that being said, uh, it all is rooted in what we see in this story. The need to be justified that we all have and the need to be perfectly loved. And being justified by, by Christ leads to knowing the perfect love of God the Father. And, um, and so, what do we do about this? What do we do about this? Well, I have one practical thing, uh, a practical thing to do. That is, first off, I think it's very helpful to, by the way, the applications on your sheet I've totally changed. So, um, so sorry. Um, I think the first thing is it's very helpful for you to know yourself. For you to know yourself, to know your story, but particularly to know your false identities, and to know your idols. So what do I mean by that? Like, what are the things that when you feel threatened, 
particularly you feel like your identity is threatened, that you run to to kind of validate your worth. Like, does that person have any idea who I who I am, or do they know where I went to college, or uh, I'm I, you know all these things we have in our head. You know, maybe that it may be. Uh, I mean, I know mine really well. I'm not going to put them all on the table because it's really embarrassing. <laughs> um, but you know, things that have to do with status or achievements of yours or. Uh, um, things that you've accumulated, uh, just whatever it may be, the, f- the false identities that we all have. And so, and then the second one is to know our idols. Like, know what are the things that we think, like, think in our heart will satisfy us. Like, if, you know, it might maybe for you it's money, or maybe for you it's success, or maybe for you it's like the picture of the perfect family, or whatever it may be, whatever your idols are, um, to know them. And then I, something that I do, I call it emptying myself out. And that is where um, knowing these things about myself, I actually I did this this morning. I need to do this about every third day because my sin just like creeps up on me so, so bad. Yeah. Um, yeah. I, I'm, not, I'm not only the president, I'm a client. Uh, so the um, <laughs> hair called for men. Come on, guys. Uh, yeah. And so that's where I will just kind of prayerfully write down all of my false identities on a, you know, on a sheet of paper, and I'll write down all my idols till I get to the point where I can sit there prayerfully and say, like, Lord, all I am is one who's forgiven and righteous. All I am is an adopted child of God. That's all I am. Everything else is false. And, man, I want to tell you, if you want to feel comfortable in your own skin, like, walk out the door one morning and, and having divorced yourself from all of these false identities, all these false senses of worth, and being like, hey, all I am, is an adopted child of God. All I am is one who's righteous and forgiven. And that right there, you find that you're less insecure and you're a whole lot less defensive because you're standing on, you're standing on the truth, you're standing on solid ground. And so if that's all you are with your kids, like you don't need your kids to justify you because you're finding your justification in God. You're finding your justification in what Jesus has done and his grace for you. And so that's the, that's the first thing, is to empty that out. Second thing is... Um, is to, and, you know, to write down those idols that you know that you have. And just prayerfully be like, Lord, free me from that, free me from that, free me from that. If you want to get really advanced, to say like, Lord, I have this idol of money, and really what I need to do is trust you to provide for me. You know, if you're, I, I, I'm trying to put way too much, stuff way too much into five minutes. But like, let's think about if your money is, um, if your money is, uh, sorry, if your idol is money, and you're kind of fearful about money and, well, that, that, a lot of times, you'll use your kids in the sense of, like, manipulating them to be a superstar athlete because you hope they might get a scholarship, or to be a superstar uh, student because you're hoping that they're going to, you know, win a scholarship, like I said. Or, uh, yeah, you know, just your, our junk, our idols, our sins spills over onto our kids in a way where we don't relate to them lovingly and trusting, you know, trusting that they belong to the Lord and seeking the Lord's plan for their life, but instead... Um, we objectify them, and we put stuff that's really about us on them. And so, um, so when we have this sense that we are justified by the Lord, and that we're fully loved by God, which is the, the only place you can be justified is in Christ, and the only place you're going to find the love that your heart really desires, it's not in your spouse, it's not in your kids, it's not in your friends, it's in God. And the only way that we can experience that is through the Holy Spirit. Uh, it says twice in Galatians uh, 3 and in... Um, Romans 8, that the Holy Spirit bears witness that we are children of God. And what that means is the Holy Spirit that helps us to believe that. 
Because it's one of the things for me to be, for to be like, okay, great, I'm just going to experience the love of God. Like, what, 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 how does that happen? We ask the Holy Spirit to make that real for us, to help us to experience that. And so our best parenting is going to come when we reduce ourselves to one who is forgiven and justified and one who's an adopted child of God. And when we are operating out of the love of God. And then we're going to be able to love our children as people and not use them. Um, anybody have, i got two minutes, dog. I've got so much time. Anybody have any questions or veteran parent observations that you'd like to throw out there? Praise the Lord. I mean, that's a, that's a sign of a household where like grace, where that's, where grace is definitive. Your kids can, uh, can be honest in that way. That's good. Yeah. Good gifts of creation that we elevate to being the creator. Yeah. That's really good for shizzle. I might do a series on idolatry and parenting second semester. Anything else? <laughs> all right, I'll pray for us. Thank you all so much. All right, God, thanks for, um, thank you so much that uh, you are uh, the meter of all of our needs. And um, Lord, help us to live in the rest and the freedom, knowing that we do not need to justify ourselves, um, that we don't need to validate ourselves, that you have validated us by your love and by the cross. And I thank you too, Lord, that you love us in the way that we long for and that um, you're the one who satisfies the deepest desire of our heart. And I pray that, um, Holy Spirit, we ask that you would be generous to us, that we would feel and experience that in a, in a way that, um, that we haven't before. That doesn't necessarily mean that we'll experience heaven, Lord, but but, but more than we have before, such that, it, that we know that it's real. And so um, remind us that we're forgiven. Um, we all, you know, when we talk about these kind of things, we can feel really uh, crummy and ashamed. And uh, lead, us, lead us away from shame, Lord. But lead us into the light of your love. To ask these prayers in Jesus' name, amen. You've been listening to audio from the Cathedral Church of the Advent. If you live in Birmingham or find yourself visiting, we hope you'll join us at one of our Sunday services. Find out more at adventbirmingham.org.